Dear brothers and sisters, if I can call you that. Hi, I'm Joseph Smith. Weird, huh? Now, I never expected to see so many wonderful people attracted to my teachings. Or at least attracted to some of my teachings. Or at least to this pretty disgusting thing that grew out of my teachings. I hardly recognize myself in most of what's going on, supposedly in my name, today. It all started off as a game, you know. It's pretty much all just a big game, really. But I'm here today for a specific reason. I want to say I'm sorry. And it's going to take some time. I won't be able to get to all of it today. But I want you all to know, every single one of you, and especially those in the corporate suits sitting on those ridiculous red chairs behind me, it's that if I were really here, if I were more than just a fictional character created in the mind of a podcasting infant, I could destroy you all combined in a battle of wits with both hands tied behind my back. You guys think you're so smart and big and important because of this religious mafia culture you were born into and you worked your way up into? You disgust me. You so-called leaders, you so-called prophets and seers and revelators, you make me sick. Now, I was a storyteller. God, I loved telling stories and exploring ideas and pushing the boundaries of conventional wisdom and understanding and stirring up excitement in the hearts and minds of everyone around me. You guys are boring. So incredibly boring. So serious, so stodgy, so unimaginative, so uninteresting, so unproductive, not helpful to growth. You want people to stay as they are. That's not what I ever wanted for the people who listened to me, who loved me, who I loved back. I don't know what this has become. I don't like it. Where in the world did this whole reverence thing come from? That wasn't from me, I can tell you that. The thing that excited people the most about the stories that I told, the common thread tying all of them together, it was the way that I gave them permission to tell stories of their own. The permission for them to explore ideas, to challenge conventional understanding, to push boundaries, even to make mistakes. Yeah, I know, some boundaries should never be pushed. You're right. And yes, I personally made some very serious mistakes that I'm eternally ashamed of. And there's absolutely no excuse or justification for what I did. Helen Mark Kimball, for example. When I saw the look in her eyes after doing what I did to her, after realizing how far my power and my thirst for love and approval had taken me, it shattered me because I could see that it shattered her. I, I, was, I was awful. I was wrong. And I'm hard at work trying to right my many, many wrongs. And I have more to say on that, but I'll do it another time. The main thing that I want to say today is this. Leaders, members, Ex-Mormons, all of you. 
Knock it off with the serious rigidity and pompous idea that any of you have it all figured out. Free yourself from the illusion that you are anything more than a storyteller in a giant game of choices. Follow your heart wherever it takes you. Follow your passions, your loves, your anger, your hatred. See where those things take you. Feel what you feel. Whatever degree of experience you attain in this lifetime carries with you into the next. So experience all you can experience because you will learn to love yourself in the process. You'll learn to understand things that right now you don't understand. Get off your smartphones. Get off of your computers. Go outside. Spend some time in nature and watch the way that the clouds form. Try to predict how they move. See how well you do at that. Watch what the wind does to the leaves and the long, tall grass. Imagine all the forces at play that make this great dance happen. Watch and observe life all around you in its many, many forms. And ask yourself, at the basic level, what's so different between that life that's outside of you and that life that's inside of you? Imagine what the world looks like while traveling outward towards the farthest reaches of space. Imagine what the world looks like while traveling inward to the smallest subatomic particle. Observe the motion, the commotion, the chaos. See if you can find any patterns in it. What's the order? What makes things move? What's the influence behind them? See how all things around you move and flow and dance with life. And then look at those rigid walls and fences and signposts and just see, are they moving with this? They're all missing out, like so many stodgy, boring white men propped up on red seats in their starched corporate suits behind me. Now you'll be hearing more from me, brothers and sisters, if you want to. But you won't find much of me or the reasons behind the stories that I told among this gadianton-sized band of usurpers standing up here on their ramiamptums. Yeah, those were my ideas, you know. And I was aiming them exactly at assholes and organizations like this one. And these things I say to you, in the name of that beautiful, playful, joyful, chaotic commotion that is the birthright of every single living thing. Amen. Hey everybody, this is Glenn Ostland from Infants on Thrones, the podcast. And this is the re-release of the General Conference episode for April 2018. Um, I, I put together an episode, I put it up for a few days and then I pulled it down because there was this section, uh, towards the end, uh, this long discussion with Joseph Smith that, uh, I just didn't really like, you know, I had all these clips from a Brian Greene documentary, Fabric of the Cosmos and some other things. It just was long and, um, I didn't like it. Now, if you want to hear that version, if you're interested, if you didn't hear it and you want to hear it, it is available on Patreon. So if you join us and support us on Patreon, you can still hear that thing. But um, I pulled it down and uh, redid the talk that you just heard um, in the intro here, which I thought was fun and I want to do more of. So anyway, here is the rest of the Infant General Conference episode for those of you who haven't heard it, minus the Joseph Smith part that's out now. And enjoy. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson. You say you want some revelation. Well, here you go. 
gonna blow your freaking mind It's crucial for the world's salvation So here you go High priests and elders are combined They come from different generations But I'm sure they'll get along just fine And I know there will never be A fight The Earth is 6,000 years old No, it's billions of years old They won't fight Darn those gays to heck We need to love our gay brothers and sisters They'll never fight I'm out of here, Grandpa What? What? You say you want some revelation Well, now you know The home teaching program soon will end Oh, and I was gonna do mine this month No, you weren't Yeah, you're right, I wasn't Never mind that that was revelation A long time ago We're holier than they were then Home teaching's replacement will be very much the same With a little less guilt and a mainstream Christian name Ministering Don't you know that it's gonna be? Alright So what do you think of this new ministering program? Eh, it's alright Alright Yeah, I guess it's alright It's alright Alright Here follows the collected revelations of Heber J. Grant, George Albert Smith, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, Ezra Taft Benson, Howard W. Hunter, Gordon B. Hinckley, and Thomas S. Monson. That is all. You say you want some revelation, well, you know. Seven temples were announced. We want you to make more donations, so then you know A list of new temples totally counts We're growing like crazy, at least so it must appear And you're led by a prophet, revelator, and a seer Really? Who? President Nelson? Oh, right Don't you know that it's gonna be? Alright A temple in Leighton? Oh, yeah Alright Now we don't have to drive all the way to Ogden. All right. Don't you know that it's gonna be? All right. The apostles just got a little bit less white. All our alibi's gonna be airtight. For the cover-ups. Please don't make a movie about us like Spotlight. That was hard-hitting. I gotta go dedicate another new temple site. For all of our members in India. This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Dear brothers and sisters, good morning, or good evening. It's hard to tell from where I am anymore. I don't know if you expected to hear from me today or not, but you should have. Being able to mimic a voice, even partially, like this one, is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. In order to mimic another person's voice, there are three divine steps 
One must follow. Step one. Pay close attention to the sounds they make when they talk. Their tone, their cadence, the way they pronounce their S's. All these kinds of things. Listen, learn, pay attention. Step two. Try to sound like that person who you are trying to mimic. That may seem obvious, but I needed something for number two, and that seemed like a pretty good number two kind of thing to say. So, in other words, in the words of our former beloved prophet and seer, Spencer W. Kimball, just do it. Or, in other words, just do it. And step three, have the ability to sound like someone else, even a little. Because if you can't do that, well, then what are we even talking about? So now here we are, brothers and sisters, on the eve of a new presidency change. I will no longer be around in any way other than some Obi-Wan Kenobi force ghost kind of way from now on. It's now time to develop a way of mimicking the speaking patterns of yet a new would-be prophet of the Lord. Yea, verily even this man, listen to his voice, follow the three steps above. We deeply miss President Thomas S. Monson. Speak, speak, speak in the name of God the Lord, even the safe, safe Savior of the world. He wants all of his ordained sons, 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 to represent him, Thomas S. 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 Monson. Does anything in particular jump out to you about the way that President Nelson speaks? No. Keep at it. For verily... I testify to each of you this day that if you will but follow the divinely inspired three-step process of mimicking the Lord's would-be anointed, one can become expert in excavating even the most minute distinguishing vocal characteristics. Somebody call for an excavation expert? (laughs) Why, President Nelson, so good you could join me here on this podium on this historically historic and momentously momentous baton-passing session of Infant General Conference. Hey, if I was you, I'd think about skedaddling out of here. Oh, I will be skedaddling soon enough. But first, a few questions. And honey. No, just questions. (laughs) You have completely rocked the world. By combining Elder's Quorum and High Priest Quorum, you have made huge, teeny-tiny 2018-sized steps towards equal representation and sort of steps away from white guy onlyism by adding two pigmently, <laughs> pigmently variating apostles. What's next? Will you be changing green jello salad? Salmon salad? No, green jello salad. Cream, je- President Nelson. Salad? I'm saying. Salmon no, salad? I'm saying cream. Salmon salad? Oh, fine. What about tithing? What do you plan to keep that percentage at? 10%. Very good. What about these temples? 
They're being built over previously existing buildings. How should we remove those buildings? Should we use explosives? Good idea! Or dynamite! Save time. President Nelson, it sounds like you have everything under control. I'm now comfortable in ascending back up to heaven. It's all yours now. Up, up, and away! Praise to the man who's so big and important We can only hope to be as big and important as him He did no wrong cause he was big and important Big and important is what we all should be Let's praise the man and Wow, that seemed to go on interminably. Brothers and sisters, hi, I'm Elder D. Glenn Oslam II from the Quorum of the Infants on Thrones, and it's my great pleasure for my recorded voice to be virtually standing here before you today as mostly just myself, not hiding too much behind bells and whistles and curtains, but to be here pretty much as I am and share with you some of the things that have become pretty important to me over the past several months in the form of a general conference talk that I intend to be the kind of general conference talk that I wish I could actually hear from the mostly well-meaning and often pretty close to actually really good, albeit bland, messages of love and charity and forgiveness that come from the leaders of the Mormon church. But here, right here, is what I really wish that they would say. Brothers and sisters, we're sorry. You know how there's often a very obvious difference between the work ethics and the overall mindset of wildly successful self-made millionaires and then the children and the children's children of these self-made millionaires? I think that's kind of like us, isn't it? Us being the, the leaders of this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because Joseph Smith, for all of his many and often inexcusably horrendous flaws, actually taught some pretty good stuff. Some stuff that really can bring happiness to people through living an exceptionally healthy, well-balanced, service-filled, forgiveness-filled, loving lives. And we're sorry that we use those teachings as bait in the massive bait-and-switch scheme that we have become over the past hundred or so years. We're sorry that every good message we share gets twisted and turned in all these different ways to just justify and revalidate our own power and authority and big importantness over you. We're sorry that we crush individualism 
and that we try to force everyone to fit into the same narrow, unimaginative-shaped boxes. We do it because we're scared and because we're damaged, much like you've been damaged. And we continue to perpetuate a system that rewards us with love and acceptance when and if we obey and conform to arbitrary standards that we just keep enforcing and reinforcing without really thinking about because they've been so tied, so intrinsically tied to the ideas of the gospel. We're scared of being disobedient because of the rejection that will come from that. And we don't understand that this is an abusive system because we do everything that we can to color inside the lines and we bury our own inner hopes and desires. Anything that might encourage us to explore outside the lines, we bury that under a sea of denial. And we, as leaders of this church, have created that sea of denial from our own urine, basically, and that of our fathers and of their fathers. So anyway, we're sorry about that. We haven't really understood our own hypocrisy because we've never been allowed to question or criticize our own beliefs and culture to the point where we could identify that hypocrisy, where we could see that just by saying love one another on the one hand is so violently inconsistent with vilifying people who love people of the same gender or vilifying victims of sexual and other vile forms of abuse or vilifying and othering people who have tattoos or multiple ear piercings, bare shoulders, people who drink coffee and tea and beer, people who water ski on Sundays, people who believe different things than we do, or worse, people who share many of our core professed values but do so in a form that is so strange and foreign to us that we just can't see it. Because of our own fear and insecurities, we've played this us-versus-them game with the world and have unintentionally planted horrible seeds of bigotry in our people that are not consistent with our core professed values. But because we've created this system of conditional love based on conforming to the outward appearance of arbitrary standards, we haven't developed enough self-love or self-confidence to be comfortable being around people who are different from us. It's a problem. It's a problem that we created and a problem that we continue to create. And we are sorry. And we're going to change. We are going to change. We're going to be more understanding. We're going to be more accepting. We're going to be more loving. We are going to be more forgiving. We are going to be more trusting of our own doctrines about the atonement. We will embrace the story of Jesus. Jesus being beaten by the Romans being stabbed and pierced and nailed to a cross to die, this all-powerful being that can move mountains, he could have picked it up and dropped it on him like Magneto, but he let it happen. He didn't stop them. Because of his supreme confidence in himself, he knew that no harm they inflicted on him could change his commitment that he had made to loving them. And with his very last words, he forgave them. Now, if Jesus in the story or real life, however you want to take it, if, if Jesus can do this, and we're going to profess to be the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then so can we. We can do that too. We can relax about our so-called offenses 
that happen against us, people who make fun of us, people who believe and live differently than we do. Now, those aren't nearly as painful as a crown of thorns nailed into our skulls. So we will stop blowing all that shit out of proportion. We'll just trust that love is the way. Since we say that it is, we'll just do it for everything and we'll embody that teaching. Even if it means that we have to suffer for a time or that we don't always get our way or that people act differently than we do, we won't compromise our commitment to love and to forgive. This is what I'd like to hear said from the leadership of the Mormon Church. And uh, we'll never hear it, of course, but it's what I'd like. Because I'd like to spend more time looking at what is actually valuable in the teachings, looking at what they use as bait to bring people into this trap that we've been able to escape from, maybe. Maybe we have. Maybe some of these bad characteristics that we rail against in the church we carry with us in our own lives, maybe. I think we need to examine that more. I do. And I think this... Uh, largely because I recently had a conversation with Joseph Smith. Yeah, seriously, I did. I talked with him. And I'm going to tell you about that later in today's conference episode. But first, let's cleanse the palate with some more music and see what other talks might pop up. And these things I leave with you in the name of love, forgiveness, and a renewed commitment to live a life full of integrity. Namaste, Amen, and Aho, whatever you need. Love you. consolidation of two groups of men. Just fantastic. I can think of nothing more important God might choose to reveal in these modern days. These profound changes have freed me up to give an especially forgettable talk entitled Small and Simple Things. Because you are unlikely to remember anything I am about to say, the Lord has instructed me 
to deconstruct my unoriginal talk as an example for you to understand the apostolic talk writing process. First, you need one reference or quote for every one minute you plan to read from the teleprompter. In my case today, my talk includes 18 quotes spread across 17 minutes. In descending order of importance, I am grateful to explain to you how this inspirational process works. 1. Have at least four quotes from the Book of Mormon. I chose two from Nephi, one from Alma, and one from Helaman, a healthy mix of our most insufferable rhetoric. 2. Quote at least three prophets, the living one, Russell M. Nelson, a recent dead one, Howard W. Hunter, and the original two, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, even though they don't take as long to say because it was before we started using middle initials. 3. Quote at least three living apostles sitting right behind you. I like to choose one weepy emotional one, Henry B. Eyring, one hard-ass one, David A. Bednar, and one of the mildly offensive and annoying ones that get away with their middle initial being at the beginning of their name, M. Russell Ballard. 4. The Bible. It's important, but not too important. Fourth place important. You only need two references from the Bible. I chose 1 Peter and Numbers because they sound vaguely academic. 5. Once you get the pesky Bible, as far as they are translated correctly references, out of the way, then you must make sure to have an equal amount of Doctrine and Covenants references. Quoting the Bible may be required to help solidify our mainstream status, even if those references are only partially related to what you really want to say. But the Doctrine and Covenants contains the best of the best, in terms of Mormon quirkiness mingled with scripture. 6. Hymns Typically, you only need one hymn reference, as it often works as a good way to fill the diversity quota, so as to instill thoughts that I know that women still exist, since many of the hymns are written by them. For this talk, I chose to quote two hymns. Unusual, I know, but those paying close attention now know that I am not misogynistic at all. 7. Make sure to quote one BYU president. This is to reinforce the strong focus the church has on education as a hedge against, well, everything else. 8. The token non-Mormon pithy reference. Normally, I might use C.S. Lewis to fill this requirement. But when feeling especially edgy, I like to quote secular political leaders, but only from the United States, of course. In this case, a senator from Indiana. 
Now that you understand that regurgitating quotes makes up more than 80% of most any talk I, quote, prepare, closed quote, it's time to explain the other four components that make up the rest of the talk. One, the intro. Make sure you mention a recent event or Christian holiday as a reason to state that the church is mainstream and Christian. Two, have at least one, ideally two, guilt-inducing references to church doctrine. In this case, I chose to squeeze in guilt-inducing references to both the word of wisdom and pornography. Three, this may be the most difficult part of the process. Come up with something uh, original. The easiest way to do this is to think up an original analogy. It need not be long, just a few sentences, in fact. The goal is for you, brothers and sisters, not to be able to claim that the entire talk is completely regurgitated drivel. In this case, I came up with the analogy of the thrusting power of cracks in concrete as a metaphor for how little sins build over time. Here I found that I must be very careful so as to avoid any misinterpretation, usually of a sexual nature. In this case, the thrusting power of cracks is completely safe and does not conjure up images of anything else related to thrusting power or cracks. 4. The Closing Be sure to reference the living prophet and specifically something he might have just said as if you're not reading from a teleprompter and are otherwise spontaneously in tune with him. Brothers and sisters, our commitment to consistently following the small things we are taught as it pertains to the talk writing process will enable us to stand tall in our banality. In the name of Jesus Christ and the thrusting power of cracks, amen.
Jesus did something right around this holy time of Easter, his apostle Peter taught, Let all know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. His followers were confused and asked Peter what they should do. It doesn't really matter what he told them to do. The point is that they obeyed with gladness, happily obeying. The Lord needs us, sisters. He needs us to nurture, to speak up, not about impertinent things, of course, about the gospel. He needs us to defend the truth with our righteousness, our wonderful inspiration and intuition, our necessary parts of building the kingdom of God, which really means doing our part to bring salvation to God's children, which really means having and rearing children within the sacred confines of the gospel. We need to nurture others, This is what our Heavenly Father and Mother do. But we should also nurture ourselves. By this, I don't mean to take care of ourselves as we would take care of others, making sure we get enough sleep, a good diet, plenty of enjoyable creative outlets, and cultivating a fulfilling life by using our intellect and various talents. No, not that. We must nurture our faith, sisters. But what if some of our own traditions don't fall in line with the high expectations of the gospel? What if we have different, lesser values than these? When I was born, my parents planted a magnolia tree in the backyard so there would be magnolias at my wedding ceremony held in the Protestant church of my forefathers. But on the day of my marriage, there were no parents at my side and no magnolias. For as a one-year convert to the church, I abandoned my birth family and their dream to see me wedded to the one I loved so that I could go to a closed ceremony in Salt Lake. When I left my hometown and family and neared Utah, a feeling of homelessness swept over me. Here I was, a stranger to Utah, going to stay in a stranger's house before being sealed for eternity to a family I barely knew. Good thing I loved and trusted my future husband and the Lord. As I stood at the front door of Aunt Carol's house, I wanted to shrink away. The door opened. I stood there like a scared rabbit, and Aunt Carol, without a word, reached out and took me into her arms. Even though she had no prior experience as a real mother, Her nurturing female heart knew that I needed a place to belong. I can only imagine how this moment must have made her feel. She had probably waited her whole life to nurture a person in such a way that made her feel like a real mother, finally. And I'm so happy I could do that for her, because it is truly through a woman's ability to mother that her self-worth can be assessed. In an instant, with Aunt Carol, I forgot all about that marigold tree, or whatever it was. I had a new family and a new purpose. To obey the Lord truly is a gift to the soul. You see, 
Love is not really about family connections or bridging our collective pasts and futures or including one another no matter their differences. It's about making room for people who are just like us. Mothers do this. They make room in their very bodies and hearts for the children they so beautifully bear and raise. But don't fret, sisters. Not only women who bear children can do this. Eve did this even before she bore children. She was given a name by her husband that meant the mother of all living. So obviously women are mothers before they are even mothers. It's the most important thing. And mothering can mean so many things. It can mean being a mother to someone who is in need, who is hopeless, or who is, in other words, doubting the church. If we don't have children, we can take care of sad, hopeless people who need mothers. We are so important, we women, because we can be mothers, even if we are really real mothers. This is the work of the Savior. This is what He did. He took care of the sick, the downtrodden, and the rejected. He mothered. So you'll be like the Savior if you do this. We need to also speak the truth and testify. Priesthood leaders speak with power and authority, and we can too. We are so equal, sisters, and talking and gathering comes together so easily to us with our feminine ways. As the priesthood delegates to us, or rather as we work by delegated priesthood authority, our feminine ways and gathering and talking habits naturally grow into gospel teaching and equalish leading. The Holy Ghost will help us with this, especially when we need to face opposition. This one time at home, I received an anonymous phone call about the size of my family. I had to defend my right to have as many wonderful children as I do. Imagine someone insulting my ability to do the most important thing, be a mother. I prayed to the Lord in that moment for help, and a thought came to me. What would the Lord say to this woman on the phone? I said, I am glad to be a mother, and I promise you I will nurture my children in such a way that they are guaranteed to be righteous and make this world a better place, because that is the only way I know how to define success as a woman. And someone as smart, as ambitious as myself is going to be successful at something. She replied, Well, I hope you do, and hung up. It wasn't a big deal after all, which is why I bring it up during conference. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When I was asked to give this talk today, I initially refused. I thought to myself, who the heck am I? What the heck do I know? I'm not really an authority on anything but my own flawed opinions. And if I stand up and blather over the pulpit in general conference, my flawed opinions will be looked upon as carrying far more weight than they actually should. So I refused the invitation, but they asked me again, and once again I refused. Finally, they told me that I had no choice.
So I chose to believe that. And I'm standing here before you, getting ready to spout some of the most unethical and immoral things your way, but in a somewhat non-consensual and involuntary way. So in this light, I will proceed in not only telling you, but also showing you very clearly the concept of non-consensual immorality. Because once again, I didn't want to do this. So it's really not my fault. So let's frame it this way. This life is the time for all of us to prepare to meet God. And no unclean thing can be in the presence of God. So that means that if you do anything unclean in this life, or if anything makes you unclean in this life, then, brothers and sisters, you are basically screwed. Nothing for you! Nothing for you. Sorry. I knew a person once who lived in a place and did some immoral things that made them unclean, and that made them very unworthy. So let that be a lesson to all of you, okay? Now, some of you may be thinking, but wait a minute, what about Jesus' atonement? I thought his whole death on the cross was meant to wash away the sins of all humankind in this life. Well, yes, sort of. But here's the thing. That only works when someone with the Mormon priesthood, I, I mean someone with Jesus' authorized priesthood, he gave it to us. Someone with the Mormon priesthood baptizes you by immersion and two other people make sure that no hair or any part of your clothes float up onto the surface and just ruin it for you. And in that moment, you are clean. But no sooner do you come out of the water than the sins start piling up again, and the only way to keep cleaning off all of that sin is to do everything that we, your Mormon leaders, I mean, Jesus' representatives, that's who we are, that's why we're the, Jesus, it's, it's about Jesus. What we, your Mormon leaders, tell you to do. Everything. Just do it. That's the path to cleanliness. But even then, well, just don't ever get too comfortable. That's all I'm saying. Because look around you. The world is horrible. Just horrible. So wicked. So, so wicked. And you're bound to get some of that wickedness on you, whether you mean to or not. Like in those cases where sexual predators uh, defile the purity of their victims and turn those victims into sinners without their consent. Sorry, victims. Nothing for, you. Nothing for you! Sure. It would be nice if your church could see you as not defiled and not as sinners. That would probably be very nice indeed, but we don't make up the rules, brothers and sisters. Bring that up with God. Of course, there are ways that victims of non-consensual immorality can eventually be mostly repurified. Just follow, obey, pay your tithing, all that good stuff, and hope for the best. Because that's what love is. And that's what makes us such a loving organization. Willing to rehabilitate even the worst, most vilest of sinners in this world, consensually stained or otherwise. You're welcome. In the name of a Jesus 
who we will do our very best to convince to accept you back. Amen. Plus four, baptism in a view, bishop shut the door. <clears throat> Son, if you skate upon thin ice, then you'll hurt Jesus, and that's not nice. What I'm saying is, after you're baptized, don't ever touch yourself. I look straight down to the floor. You mean I can't do that no more? But, my dear boy, you're only eight. So, let's make this clear. Uh, don't obfuscate. Just how many times have you touched yourself before? One times eight is eight. Two times eight is sixteen. Three times eight is twenty-four. Four times eight is thirty-two. And five times eight is forty, you know. Uh, hang on, so you've done this about forty times? Six times eight is forty-eight. Seven times eight is fifty-six. Eight times eight is sixty-four. Nine times eight is seventy-two. And ten times eight is eighty, that's true. Oh, wait, no, no, I, I was talking about when you eventually hit puberty. 11 times 8 is 88 12 times 8 is 96 I just love to get off all these cool new tricks Cause 12 times 8 is the same as 10 times 8 plus 2 times 8 80 plus 16 is 96 I just hope you haven't done this with anyone else or with your pets You haven't, have you? 1 times 8 is 8 2 times 8 is 16, 3 times 8 is 24, 4 times 8 is 32, and 5 times 8 is 40, you know. Oh, little Randy, you know, we've got some definite work to do. Oh, Bishop dear, what does this mean? When I get dunked, will I still be clean? I didn't know that this was bad. It just felt great. It felt so rad. How could something that doesn't hurt anyone at all and feel so good hurt Jesus and be so bad? I've often wondered that very thing myself. Oops, I did it again. Hey, Bishop, maybe this is what makes those heavenly gates so pearly. Uh, that's enough. Brothers and sisters, you may remember me from last conference. I'm the woke GA. Hashtag woke GA. I was the GA that had a bit of an existential crisis in the middle of my talk last conference. Well, I'm back. And I'm here to tell you that I've recommitted to the church and resolved any concerns that I had about the whole church not being enough like hippie Jesus thing that I talked about last time. Hashtag woke GA. Now, before I get into my message, I'm obligated to, I would like to testify 
of Joseph Smith, the flawed, flawed, flawed man that he was. But despite those flaws, he was, uh, they were, they were big, big flaws, huge, huge. But as flawed as he was, he did come up with some pretty good stuff. And I'd like to testify about a, some of the stuff that he said that was pretty good, despite being so flawed. Three things that he did talk, teach that I can certainly get behind and testify to are these. God exists. Every person is entitled to their own revelation from God, and creeds are an abomination. When he taught these things, he answered a number of questions about the universe. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. The who is God, the source, universe. The what is to find out for ourselves about the nature of the universe through revelation. The where and the when is wherever and whenever you're ready. The how is through no creeds, no rules, no dogmas. And the why is because the universe loves you. And the universe wants you to love you too. That's a message I can testify to. My message today is directed to the non-believer, the future non-believer, and their loved ones. The kingdom of heaven is like unto the sun. And there were many who recognized the goodness and the glory of the sun and wanted to attain it. And so they'd go out worshiping the sun, enjoying its rays, and encouraging their family members to go out and to constantly spend time in the glory of the sun. These people were called the people of the sun. From a young age, his family took him outside where they spent most of their time talking about and experiencing the glory of the sun. At some point, this child woke up and he saw some redness on his body. And he wondered what caused that. And he asked his parents about the redness because he'd seen redness before, but they'd always said that this was a good thing. That this was something that the son provided as a lesson and as a protection. This child accepted that and he continued worshiping the son going outside and being exposed to the glory of the son. As his child grew up, he started to learn more about the son and the power of the son. And that these life-nourishing rays also come with ultraviolet rays that are damaging and destructive. He learned a little bit more about the sun and learned that the sun also can give off too much heat and create drought and death and destruction. His parents and his family members told him those were just myths. The child got a little older and saw a mark on his body. He went to the healer in his community. And the healer told him that was fine. That was a mark given by the sun. Vitamin D, the healer said. That mark on this child's body was given from the sun. 
But it wasn't vitamin D. It was cancer. And this child began to resent the sun, now experiencing the damage that it can cause. And this child cursed the sun and to resent all those who thought it was good. Other people would ask him, why don't you go outside? And he'd just simply tell them, the sun gets cancer. His friends would nod, but still they'd go out riding bikes and picnics and taking their families out into the sun. One day, this child's closest friend asked the child to go on a walk. The child explained again, no, I don't go out in the sun. The sun gives cancer. The child's friend agreed, said you can protect against that. For the first time, the child learned how to hone the power and the glory of the sun while also shielding the child from the destruction that the sun can cause as well. This understanding caused a new relationship between the child and the son. It allowed the child to have new relationships with people and loved ones who had a healthy relationship with the son. As the child realized it wasn't the son that was the problem. It was the way his family exposed him to the son. With this new understanding and this appreciation for the son, the child thought, I can return to my family. Now we have something in common. And he went home and he told his family about his understanding of the son. But his family still couldn't accept that cancer exists. And when the child heard this, the child was sad. And as the child looked over at the child's brothers and sisters, all he saw was redness. The kingdom of heaven is likened to the sun. Harness its life-giving rays. Find the vitamin D. But protect yourself against the cancer. One thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some priesthood power, priesthood power. It's nice when you've got authority to move the mountains over plains or seas. Everybody needs some priesthood, needs a little priesthood power. That's how it was in the early days of the Mormon church. Since elders were apostles, everyone was low. Inflation was the only place there was to go. The first elder of the church was Joseph Smith. He quickly tired of sharing power with all the other elders in the church, in the church. And so in 1832 he prayed and he got a revelation true, making him the president, the president of priesthood power. Oh, priesthood power, priesthood power, everybody needs some priesthood power, the utmost trust in God we trust, there's authority there. 
Melchizedek was once a mighty king. He ruled over Salem and everything. He could heal the sick and raise the dead. Raise the dead, he ordained. Apostles Peter, James, and beloved John to pass his mighty holy power on. They showed up and gave Joseph super-duper priesthood power. The way was opened up for unchecked tyranny. There were plenty of foes cut off with woes, but the prophet held the keys. Dispensational authority. The Gentiles, apostates, and Missourians, the anti-Mormons and sectarians, they rebelled against his priesthood powers, priesthood power. The mob martyred Joseph and Hiram both for vengeance. Mormons took his triplet oath until they decided in the end to to conform for good. And now the corporate heirs can jet with the, the Gentile elite. But it took conformity to buy into Wall Street. Now Mormons have become respectable, even if it's not quite electable. Although women don't got no priesthood power, priesthood power. But if there should ever come a time when social pressures start to realign, we'll pull back like with the blacks again and again. Oh, priesthood power, priesthood power. Everybody needs us some priesthood power. The utmost trust in God we trust. There's authority there. Worth of a soul is great and the field is white and ready to harvest. Wow, that's a lot of fictional wisdom there, former Joseph Smith. Thanks for chatting. Well, hang on, um, Joseph Smith. Any final words about the current Mormon church? Yeah. Yeah, I've got some final words for the current Mormon church. They speak with me of their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Mic drop, biatch. They worship power and control. They fear true self-discovery and... The chaos that comes when individuals magnify their unique, diverse beauty. It's a soul-crushing organization. Don't let it crush yours. But, love, forgive. Unlock your potential to create calm and peace in the face of even the harshest storms. Yea, verily, even the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Will you help me with that, Joseph Smith? Of course I will. I've been helping you all along. Have I done any good in the world today? Any problems I've helped realize? Have I paid debtors bookies? Brought neighbors some cookies? In hopes they'd soon be baptized? Has anyone's burden been lighter today? Because I put their name in the temple prayer roll Have the world's many addicted Been less world afflicted When they needed an eternal perspective to explain away their suffering Were they told Then wake up and do something more Than pretend that the temple work has any real impact at all There are people around you who need actual help. Real people in this life right now.
Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Elder E. Eldon Elderman of the Seventh Quorum of the Seventy. When I'm not interviewing children about their masturbation practices, I monitor the Infants on Thrones podcast for the Strengthening the Members Committee. If you really like what you hear, you can jeopardize your eternal salvation by giving the quorum a five-star rating and writing a short review on iTunes. I didn't, but that's because I want to be resurrected with my genitalia intact. Anyone for the closing prayer? And if you appreciate the work put into this podcast and the direction that we're taking it, please consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 per month. Check us out on Patreon. Thank you again for listening to Infants on Thrones. Brothers and sisters, what a divine miracle it is that I have been asked to speak to you today. Last October, when the scandal erupted over my son's innocent attempt to reap the financial harvest from the spiritual seeds I sowed in my general conference talk, in which I attempted to popularize a clever term I was divinely inspired to coin, I honestly thought I would never be allowed to speak to you ever again. Brothers and sisters, the fact that I now stand before you is an undeniable testament to the forgiving nature of our loving Father in Heaven and or the deteriorating memories of the ever-aging prophets who guide this church. It is truly a marvelous work and a wonder to be gathered today, not only here in this conference center, but also, thanks to modern technology, in our meeting houses and homes all around the world via satellite, cable, and internet transmission. Thousands of years ago, ancient prophets foretold the day when the gospel of Jesus Christ would spread to the four corners of our quadrangular earth. Thanks to the divine miracle of scientifically engineered technology, we are blessed to live in the dispensation when that prophecy has finally been fulfilled. But, as the Book of Mormon informs us, there must needs be an opposition in all things. For many years now, the adversary has been actively and effectively exploiting the Internet to spread falsehoods about our Savior Jesus Christ and His Church. But fortunately, with the aid of what can only be described as truly prophetic foresight, the brethren have lately begun warning the saints against using the Internet to find answers to church-related questions. As Elder M. Russell Ballard recently and cleverly warned, God didn't say, if any of ye lack wisdom, let him ask of Google. Recently, as I was ponderizing the meaning of Elder Ballard's quizzical quote, the Holy Spirit inspired me to coin a unique proprietary term that I firmly believe is worthy of being added to the ever-growing Mormon lexicon of meme-worthy inspirational catchphrases. To introduce this soon-to-be-popular, all-rights-reserved, divinely-inspired derivative term that will soon appear on t-shirts, colored synthetic wristbands, and even affordably-priced jewelry, I'd like to follow prophetic protocol by telling a story about the divine origin of this new term that may or may not have any actual basis in reality. Recently, an occasion arose when my dear wife and I thought it just might possibly be helpful to use the Internet. But, 
In light of the brethren's repeated warnings about the spiritual dangers lurking online, we were understandably hesitant to do so. So, as with all weighty and important matters that arise in our household, I exercised my priesthood authority to convene a family council to discuss the issue before settling on a course of action. After singing a hymn, saying a prayer, and reading a favorite scripture, our family discussed and weighed the various pros and cons of using the internet to book a trip on the Travelocity website. At length, we came to an inspired unanimous consensus that in this particular, narrow, limited instance, it would not offend our Heavenly Father to use the internet if, and only if, we put on the whole armor of God before going online. A few minutes later, as we stood in our kitchen enjoying lemon cupcakes and peppermint hot cocoa, I experienced an intense sugar rush, and a vision was opened unto me. I saw myself standing on an ancient Mesoamerican battlefield, clad in full medieval armor, like a knight of the round table, with sword and shield in hand, standing face to face with a deadly spiritual assassin, a laptop computer armed with Google Chrome. Suddenly and without warning, a barrage of testimony-destroying information shot out of the computer screen like thunderbolts. But I was able to deflect and withstand this satanic cyber attack because my spiritual eyes were shielded by an article of armored eyewear of curious workmanship that I had never before seen. As I ponderized what this armored eyewear might be called, the Holy Spirit recalled to my memory the recent words of Elder Ballard. God didn't say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of Google. And in that very moment, the Spirit prompted me to coin an alliterative term for the metaphorical ocular armor we must put on to protect our spiritual eyes from the insipid information infecting the Internet. My brothers and sisters, when we put on the whole armor of God in this internet age in which we live, we must never forget to protect our spiritual eyes with godly Google goggles. Webster's Dictionary defines goggles as, quote, close-fitting eyeglasses with side shields for protecting the eyes, close quote. Unlike regular old goggles, Godly Google Goggles do much more than just protect our physical eyes. They protect our spiritual eyes. Godly Google Goggles are the paradigmatic lenses through which we are commanded to see, interpret, and understand whatever facts and evidence we may discover on the Internet that threatens our testimony of the truthfulness of this church. If we put on the whole armor of God including and especially our godly Google Goggles, the olive tree of our testimony will remain firmly rooted in the rich, heavily fertilized soil that the Lord's living prophets continually done, and the fruit of our testimony will not wither in the blinding sun of digitally disseminated data. When we don our godly Google Goggles, 
become capable of seeing church history in the glorious light in which it shines, dispelling the dark clouds of doubt that are deceptively dispersed by the modern-day Gog and Magog of Google. Parents and teachers in the church have an especial responsibility to equip our youth with godly Google goggles to protect their developing testimonies. They can do this by inoculating the youth against challenging aspects of church history that, when taken out of their historical and spiritual context, might superficially seem to undermine the Savior's declaration that this is his only true church. To assist us in teaching our youth how to put on godly Google goggles, Church leaders have exercised their prophetic mantles by commissioning committees of professional apologists to draft essays addressing a few of the more challenging topics, which essays are now available on the church website. Allow me, if I may, to provide just two illustrative examples of how godly Google goggles empower us with spiritual X-ray vision that pierces through the gobs of gainsaying gobbledygook that lines the gutters of the information highway to hell. One superficially troubling fact that critics of the church have disseminated online is the fact that even LDS scholars now admit that the Book of Abraham is not a translation of the Egyptian papyri that the prophet Joseph said contained the writings of Abraham and which he claimed to have translated to bring forth that sacred book of scripture. On its surface, this fact would appear to deal a death blow to Joseph Smith's claim that he possessed a divine gift that enabled him to bring forth scripture by translating the writings of ancient prophets written in ancient languages. But when we put on our godly Google goggles, the dark clouds of doubt are immediately dispelled and the truth shines forth with its blinding rays. As the Gospel Topics essay on the historicity of the Book of Abraham so convincingly explains, when Joseph Smith said the papyri in his possession contained the writings of Abraham written by his own hand, and that the Book of Abraham was a translation of Abraham's writings on the papyri, Joseph didn't actually mean that he translated anything in the very limited sense in which the world uses that word. Rather, when Joseph said he translated the book of Abraham, what he meant to say was that the book of Abraham is a revelation that says stuff about Abraham that is not stated in the Egyptian papyri in his possession, which also, by the way, did not contain any writings by Abraham. Make sense? Of course it does. For those keeping score, that's God 1, Google 0. As another example, critics of the church have flooded the internet with this superficially troubling fact that the DNA of Native Americans unfortunately does not bear any resemblance to Israelite DNA. Rather, Native American DNA closely resembles the DNA of peoples living in and around Siberia. On its surface, 
This fact would appear to provide objective evidence refuting Joseph Smith's claim that Native Americans are descendants of ancient Jews. But when we put on our godly Google goggles, this argument is quickly recognized as a red herring from the Red Sea. As the Gospel Topics essay on DNA and the Book of Mormon explains, the absence of Israelite DNA and the overwhelming presence of Siberian DNA among Native Americans does not prove that the Americas were not populated by bands of ancient Israelites. Just as the absence of Japanese DNA and the overwhelming presence of Western European DNA among the Irish does not prove that Ireland was not populated by bands of ancient Japanese. For those still keeping score, that's God too, Google Zero. My brothers and sisters, I could go on and on with countless similar examples, but I know you'll agree it would be unsportsmanlike of me to run up the scoreboard like that. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, the truth is plain to all who have eyes to see through godly Google goggles. Joseph Smith was a prophet. The Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth. The Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. The Book of Abraham is the Word of God regardless of whether it was translated correctly. Thomas S. Monson is a living prophet, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church upon the earth. Therefore, it necessarily follows that every fact and evidence that undermines these pillars of our faith must be satanic deceptions. My brothers and sisters, on this spiritual battlefield on which we now stand in these last days, we must put on the whole armor of God, especially our godly Google goggles, to protect ourselves from the deceptive evidence, facts, and logic of the adversary that is lurking only a few mouse clicks away from us at all times. I testify that if we steadfastly strap on our godly Google goggles, we will have power to move mountains of evidence catastrophic to our core convictions. Brothers and sisters, may we heed Elder Ballard's clever counsel to seek wisdom by asking of God, not of Google. For if there is anything mankind has learned in its 6,000 years on this earth, it is that asking a supernatural being for answers to the big questions in life consistently and reliably leads billions of people to the same clear conclusions. I say these things in the sacred name of pious, potentially popular, and profitable pending trademarks. Amen. Sing the song, sing the song. It don't have to make.
And special thanks to Weird Alma for his, you say you want a revelation contribution. How about we hear that again just to close this thing out? Thanks, weirdo. Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well, here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. It's crucial for the world's salvation, so here you go. High priests and elders are combined. Whoa, wow! They come from different generations, but I'm sure they'll get along just fine. And I know there will never be a fight. The Earth is 6,000 years old. No, it's billions of years old. They won't fight. Darn those gays to heck. We need to love our gay brothers and sisters. They'll never fight. I'm out of here, Grandpa. What? What? You say you want some revelation. Well, now you know. The home teaching program soon will end. Oh, and I was going to do mine this month. No, you weren't. Yeah, you're right. I wasn't. Never mind that that was revelation a long time ago. We're holier than they were then. Home teaching's replacement will be very much the same With a little less guilt and a mainstream Christian name Ministering Don't you know that it's gonna be? Alright So what do you think of this new ministering program? Eh, it's alright Alright Yeah, I guess it's alright It's alright Alright Here follows the collected revelations of Heber J. Grant, George Albert Smith, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, Ezra Taft Benson, Howard W. Hunter, Gordon B. Hinckley, and Thomas S. Monson. That is all. You say you want some revelation, well, you know. Seven temples were announced. We want you to make more donations, so then you know. A list of new temples totally counts. We're growing like crazy, at least so it must appear. And you're led by a prophet, revelator, and a seer. Really? Who? President Nelson? Oh, right. Don't you know that it's gonna be? Alright. A temple in Leighton? Oh, yeah. Alright. Now we don't have to drive all the way to Ogden. All right. Don't you know that it's gonna be? All right. The apostles just got a little bit less white. All our alibis gonna be airtight. For the cover-ups. Please don't make a movie about us like Spotlight. That was hard-hitting. I gotta go dedicate another new temple site. For all of our members in India. 